It's practice. Vulnerability is practice. It is learning that you can do things and say things that seem scary, but ultimately know that you're safe. In Marco Shiro's formative years, they were taught to fear the world around them. They were isolated and controlled in all areas but one, books. And when teenage Mark eventually tried to push back against those restrictions, overnight they found themselves alone and without a home. Mark's writing career has been a journey to accepting this traumatic past, learning to process it, and discovering the value of being open with others. Their novel, Into the Light, serves as a culmination of these discoveries so far. I will say writing it was very healing. To be able to name it and say it out loud and to devise a character's journey, knowing that there's light at the end of the tunnel too, it did make writing about it a lot easier than I expected when I started the book. Mark is a Hugo-nominated writer, best known for Anger is a Gift, Each of Us a Desert, the latest installment in the Percy Jackson universe, The Sun and the Star, and of course, Into the Light. They also created the Mark Does Stuff universe, which for 13 years featured blogs reviewing popular books and TV series, sometimes with a little less sensitivity than Mark's more recent writing. That was a moment where I was like, okay, Mark, like <laughs> you can't just make a my parents are dead joke to like a random stranger. In this episode, Mark shares their life story and reflects on the refuge that books and libraries offered them as a youth from an abusive household. They discuss how lowering their emotional defenses led them to discover the healing power of vulnerability. And we'll also learn the franchise they ripped off as a kid that kicked off their love of writing. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators about ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod. And please also subscribe to our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. I know that you were adopted and that has played a really important role. So you want to talk about your early childhood and some of your early experiences? I have an identical twin brother who's based in Maryland, who is an educator. And it's very interesting because we've almost switched places because growing up, everyone was like, Mark will be the one with like five degrees and is a teacher. And Michael will be the one traveling the world with a bunch of tattoos and is a big weirdo. <laughs> and somewhere in our 20s, we like switch places. What's interesting about talking about being adopted as well is unfortunately for a lot of adopted kids, we can't really piece together our childhoods. We don't have a like a concrete history. I know we were in foster care for at least a year, possibly two years, but we were told a story about how we were adopted, how we came into our family. And it wasn't until about two years ago that we found out that most of it wasn't true. And that we were told a story that made it seem very much like our parents and in particular our mom were saviors, that they rescued us from this very dangerous, heightened situation. And it just wasn't true. And we have since you know, gotten in contact with our biological mom's sister, Wow. Who has provided us with documents. For example, I know what my name was before I was adopted. It was Kevin. When you're raised with a story, you believe it wholeheartedly and you tell other people that story. And then it wasn't until I got in my 20s and 30s 
that my brother and I started not only questioning it, but other people in our life, particularly people who were social workers, people who worked in foster care were like, that doesn't make sense. Something is missing, but we were like, well, we don't know. We can't really provide it to you. This is what we were told. What was the story that she told you? We had a drug addicted mother who was going to give us away to the streets or something, uh, which, you know, uh, that was adults. That's so absurd. But as a kid, you're like, oh my God, the streets, (laughs) you know, what are the streets where, oh my God, I don't want to go there. It wasn't someone she was related to, but it was like a friend of a family member who she heard through the grapevine and very much like some of the characters in Into Light, God told her to go save those children. And so she went through this long, lengthy, protracted adoption process and adopted us and saved us. And then the other half of it being, we spent most of our childhood believing someone was trying to take us back. So we were not allowed to have friends over to the house. No one was allowed to know where we lived. We were not allowed to do after-school events until we were about 15 or 16 years old. And then if we did well, she would pull us out of them because she didn't want attention on the family. That was what the environment I was raised in, this like white saviorism mixed with this very overprotective behavior, also mixed in with a very, very nationalistic sense of Christian identity. We had to mold ourselves into essentially the perfect white people, even though we weren't. What an identity crisis to be put in as a child. I remember very being very young, being like, some of this is bullshit. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. I don't understand it, but I don't, I don't have the words. And so I often think when I'm writing, how can I give words to someone who doesn't know how to describe their experience? And it's why Into the Light is so, I feel like it's the most specific book I've ever written. I am very much speaking to that younger version of myself and saying, you're going through this thing that doesn't make sense, and it's because it's never going to make sense. It's so odd to be a kid, having to come to that realization, like to see things for what they are, when you don't really have a way to see them for what they are, like to have to come to that on your own over time. That seems hard. But I like that you put it that way too, because it meant that there wasn't much magic in terms of the childhood, because it it was, and I certainly had positive memories and particularly of my siblings. My twin brother and I are still best friends to this day, but it's more that when I hear other people talk about their childhoods and that idea of like blissful ignorance, like I got to live in a time where I didn't know there were things wrong with the world and I didn't, I just got to be a kid. I'm sitting there like, I don't know what that's like because at a very, very young age, I was constantly told how the rest of the world was wrong and how many evil things were out there, both in terms of like society, you know, brown and black people are evil. The streets, that right? That's a a story of this external thing that's coming to get you. What were your relationships with teachers? And do you think that they- Oh my God. Did they like ever wonder what was going on? They all knew it was not a good environment at home and they could tell. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, of course they could tell. Of course, they were like cognizant of not only some of the things I might be saying in class, but I was a very shy kid. My fifth grade teacher reached out to me probably two or three years ago and was like, you were the most frightened little boy I've ever seen in my life. I remember her telling me that the only time I lit up was when I was asked to read in class. And I think that's what the teachers, certainly in elementary school, picked up on was here was the one thing Mark was thrilled about and was excited about and and would open up. 
I've heard that your mom was very encouraging of you reading, no matter what it was. Even though, and you yeah. said she so that she was a Christian nationalist, or how would you describe her? So my mom was like virulently anti anyone outside of the United States. So at home, we were told like the United States is the best country and it's because we all believe in the right Jesus. Then it became, well, it's only our city. Then it became, well, it's only our community. And by the time we're like 10 and 11, it's it's only our house. Nowhere else is safe. That being said, and this is a thing my brother and I, and, and I have a younger sister as well, who incidentally also adopted, also the same biological mom, but she has a different biological dad. We were surveilled as kids. Anything you brought into the house, you know, it was, let me make sure that that's okay, with the exception of books and the X-Files and the Twilight Zone. <laughs> My mom loved those shows. And so, like, a joke I make sometimes when I'm doing school visits is, like, you know, I, I live this heavily regimented life, but I was allowed to watch a TV show that had literal demons on it. Yeah. <laughs> in my mom's mind, my interest in, in English and in reading and generally doing well in school would save me from the streets, would save me from this life of being destitute, addicted to drugs, in a gang, any of those sort of things. So while she may not have actually had a connection with me, like a deep emotional connection with me as a child, that part she was very supportive of. She loved that I read. She loved that I was always reading. She would encourage me. I mean, we had the World Book Encyclopedias, and so sometimes she'd be like, what letter are you going to read this month? It was probably the only thing I ever really truly bonded with her over. Did she surveil like what books you were reading at home or did it matter? What Could you take them out from your school library? No. Like you could read anything no, you wanted? No, if they were in the school library, for some reason it was okay, but not music. Music, television shows, movies, no. But there was something about the written word I mean, to give you an example, my, my, I have a much, much older sister who moved out of the house years and years before I discovered this, but I think when we were like four or five, and she left behind a box of her books. And I'm eight years old, sitting on the couch reading Stephen King's It. Nuh-uh. Yeah, that was the first adult book I ever read. And I didn't truly understand it, but it gave me my love of horror and all things spooky. So this is a podcast, so they won't be able to see this, but I do keep these on my desk because I showed them for school. But like, I literally, I'm holding up a, a laminated book I wrote when I, this was 1994. So it was 10 years old. It's Marco Sherlock's Goosebumps. We can also laugh. It's called Stay Out of the Closet. I love that. I that, <laughs> that message for myself. But I, I wrote like 13 or 14 of these. Wow. But I only wrote the one. And then my, I have another one here that my teacher was like, have, you should make your own series. So I made this series. I'm holding up another one. It's called Terrifying Tales. And I wrote 13 of these. So despite the intense regulation on the rest of their life, books served as Mark's sole escape, the only place where they were able to navigate freely. However, that sole refuge would slowly slip away as they grew older. And at the same time, Mark began to realize that their mother's painting of the outside world just didn't match what Mark was seeing. I think part of the consciousness came from living in Southern California in a minority majority city. I grew up in Riverside, California. I would say 60 to 70% of the kids around me were Central American. You know, they were Mexican, El Salvadorian, Guatemalan. And so I'm finally around people who have black hair, brown skin. My brother and I are able to start speaking Spanish, even though we've never learned, or at least we thought we'd never learned a word of it. And so there is that consciousness that comes with, why is this so easy? 
why do I look like these people? But I'm being told they're bad, but I'm around them every single day. And I love my friends. I love who I'm around. This doesn't make sense. So it's that the awareness came from the contradiction of here's what I'm being told, but anytime I'm away from the house, I'm experiencing something different. And so there's this friction that's happening that forces you, even at that age, to start being aware. You have to start paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that play out as you got older? I had a very public, traumatizing moment in the middle of high school, about a month into my junior year. For context for your listeners, up until that point, my first two years of high school, this idea that my mom was slowly closing what was allowed and what my brother and I were allowed to do had gotten so small that she used to go to my school and like interrupt me in classes. Oh, wow. To like punish me for things that I had done at home. Wait, that's so humiliating for kids. So she would come like when to do what? To come to your class? She became known on campus and they had to start denying her access because she would just walk onto campus. The first memory that came to mind was one morning she came to class to yell at me. She yelled at me for not like putting clothes away correctly. Obviously, all of this is an overreaction, but a thing that I've processed, you know, with therapists is that it never was about actually doing anything wrong. I believe that she started to realize she was losing her grip on the two of us and is freaking out. So I had this teacher who I'm still friends with on Facebook today, who I will say right now, Miss Alford, if you're listening to this, like she saved my life. She latched onto me and recognized something into me when I was a freshman. She was my freshman year English teacher. I literally would not be able to sit here talking to you like this if it wasn't for her. She taught me public speaking. I became much more confident in myself. And my mom became horribly threatened by this relationship. And she very publicly pulled me out of mock trial and like yelled at my teacher in front of all of my peers because we were two minutes late during a practice once. Like we went over two minutes. She got so mad at Miss Alfred, she spread a rumor that Miss Alfred was sleeping with me. I give you this context to understand I'm 16 years old. I have no friends outside of school. I'm not allowed to go anywhere. I have my first job. So I'm allowed to go to school, cross-country practice, and I have this job at a grocery store where my mom would sit in the parking lot and surveil me and watch me. And if I talked to anyone, she would later ask, who was that? Tell me everything you said. Wow, but she she was like physically observing you. It came to a head because my my brother was not as surveilled, but pretty heavily surveilled as I was. We devised this whole system where we, I mean, this is a very teenage thing to do. We told our mom that cross-country practice ended at five every day and it ended at four. For an hour, like an extra hour, we would go to our friends' houses and just like hang out with someone. Right, just get to like do things that kids do. (laughs) And she caught us. I won't go into details because it was very violent, but she abused the two of us physically. But she focused almost all of it on me. So it was this thing where I was piecing it, trying to piece together, why am I being the target of a lot of this? And it wasn't until she said something to me that was incredibly homophobic. And then I was like, oh, that's why. That day that we have this huge fight, she tells me to leave and never come back. I don't want to ever see you again. So that was the day. If you heard it from my mom, she would say I ran away from home. But I always believed I was kicked out because she told me to leave. And I spent the remainder of high school estranged from my family. My mom did nothing to bring me home. She never wanted me back around. It took two and a half years for me to be able to even speak to her 
I had to survive high school. Either I was couch surfing with friends. There were a few educators who put their whole careers on the line to be like, do you need somewhere to sleep? Knowing that like, this is unethical, but you don't have any other choice. So I'd rather do the thing that is nice and can help you and potentially risk my career. They knew, and I knew too, like this is a big deal, but I think I lived in 20 different places by the time I graduated high school. And sometimes on the street, there was a particular park that I would, if I didn't have anywhere to go, it had this jungle gym thing that if you sit up underneath it, like the, it would block any potential rain. Now, since you've read into the light, that's where that particular heartbreak comes from. And it isn't fictional. It, I knew what it felt like. If you've read Into the Light, and I highly recommend it, you'll have noticed a lot of similarities with Mark's personal narrative. The book follows a young boy, Manny, who is cast out by his family and must navigate life in the road on his own. Little pieces of the novel are so physically and emotionally specific that they stayed with me long after reading. For instance, there's this one heartbreaking scene where Manny living with another family, painstakingly puts a towel under the door while he showers to prevent light from escaping and potentially disturbing others in the motel room. He's consumed with anxiety that the slightest mistake or imposition will get him rejected from yet another home. I asked Mark about this and they told us it does indeed take direct inspiration from old habits. That's all my routines in the places that I live, thinking, you know, the little details, don't leave body hair behind. Like something just so simple as that, because it's like, you don't want anyone to remember that you're there. And it's a thing you learn as a survival technique of, and this is a very crass way of, of thinking about it. And I, and I liked getting to write Manny thinking about it in that very direct way too. But once you become annoying to someone, your time in that place is up. And it's true. Like I knew Every time when I'd overstayed, I could feel it. I could sense it in the air. Or I'd hear a complaint about like, hey, could you not do this around the house? I'm like, that's strike one. And I understood. I don't live here. I'm not your child. There's another character he meets on the road. Cesar, the rules. A lot of that came from my experience of learning how to navigate houselessness as a teenager. I know now is it, like, even saying that is like, that is sad. Like, it is a really sad thing to have to experience at that age. But I will say writing it was very healing. To be able to name it and say it out loud and to devise a character's journey, knowing that there's light at the end of the tunnel too, it did make writing about it a lot easier than I expected when I started the book. Because I certainly dreaded writing certain passages or, or certain scenes. Oh my gosh, yes. And I mean, the way you wrote so many of these emotions is really raw and touching. And it just must have been such an unimaginably difficult time for you. I did wonder if you still were able to read and find that respite despite all the turmoil in your life at that time. Yeah, I was still constantly reading as a person who was almost at the time, like the library was my best friend. I associate that place with comfort, with warmth, food. The librarian often had snacks behind the, the counter. And I would just sit and just pull a book off a shelf and read. Or sometimes I would go up to the librarian and just be like, you know, you know that ridiculous thing? I want a book that is going to give me nightmares for 400 years. Like, And she's like, I have the perfect <laughs> I one. I have the one. <laughs> yeah, I have the one. So the library was like, your that was your spot. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I would say my middle school library, my high school library, and the public library, I spent a great deal of time in. So, so oftentimes that's where I would have to do homework because I didn't have somewhere to go. I loved that feeling of wandering down the shelf and just seeing like a spine that maybe looked a little weird and the color was like brighter than the others and pulling it out, reading the little synopsis on the back and be like, oh, I don't know what any of this is. Okay. And that it just was always so exciting to me. It was also books were my window to the outside world. When you live in such an insular you know, repressed environment, that was my chance to see what is actually going on with other people and other families. I've been thinking about your grandpa a lot, Mabel says. We've been sitting on the elevator floor, each leaning against a separate wall for a few minutes now. We've discussed the details of the buttons, the refracted light from the crystals on the chandelier. We've searched our vocabularies for the name of the wood, and settled on mahogany. And now, I guess, Mabel thinks it's time to move on to topics of greater importance. God, he was cute. Cute? No. Okay, I'm sorry. That sounds patronizing. I just mean those glasses. Those sweaters with the elbow patches. Real ones that he sewed on himself because the sleeves wore through. He was the real deal. I know what you're saying, I tell her. And I'm telling you that it isn't right. The edge of my voice is impossible to miss, but I'm not sorry. Every time I think about him, a black pit blooms in my stomach and breathing becomes a struggle. Nina LaCour's 2017 novel, We Are Okay, is widely acclaimed for its raw storytelling and emotional resonance. It receives several notable accolades, including the Michael L. Prince Award. The novel follows a young girl confronting her past, navigating through the process of understanding and healing. And for Mark, Nina's writing served as an example of the emotional impact of being open, genuine, and vulnerable. This is a scene in which their dynamic of their conversations switches to something so intimate so quickly, and it is awkward, and you as the reader can feel it's awkward, but yet it's it's so beautiful to me. And I think it also demonstrates this way Nina LaCour has of writing about emotions, where I often describe people, We Are Okay as a book where every word is in its exact right place. And it's, it is, that's a brief section of that book. And it just is a, a punch in the gut and also a hug. Because I see the act of writing through those things as a hug as well, because it is, it is an attempt to put something out in the world and someone else is going to read it and they're not alone suddenly. And that's how I felt reading this book, dealing with the lasting grief of the death of my father I had had. Another friend died about six months before this book came out. So those thoughts were like very, very fresh on my mind. I'd like to think that the work that I put out is also very much in conversation with the things that I have read and devoured. And I think this one is too. Mark's debut novel, Anger is a Gift, came out a year after LaCour's We Are Okay and similarly packed a lot of that emotional gut punch. The story is about a young boy dealing with the traumatic aftermath of the loss of his father to police violence, and it delves into heavy themes of racism, identity, and mental health. The story was fiction, but to write it, Mark had to take a deep breath and dive into a past that they had never before been public about. I think if anything, now I look back on my fear, and I think what I couldn't see at the time before it came out was... Like I was writing from this place of both 
vulnerability, but also authenticity of here. Are th- there are things in this book that I have experienced or gone through or witnessed. And I think that's what I tapped into with that book. And it's the thing I hear. This book feels so real. It feels so alive in a lot of ways. I don't think I could see that at the time. I was so close to it, both emotionally and when you're editing, when you're just going through a book over and over and over again, you, it's really hard to see the forest for the trees. But, uh, you know, I'm very proud of it and proud of the impact it has had all these years. Anger is a Gift earned Mark a Kirkus Book of the Year nod, a Lambda Award, and a lot of devoted fans, one of whom happened to be a familiar name. And the nice cherry on the top of all of this is that I had this transformation in my own perception of my book and also being able to just let go and be like, if this book can come out and then the next year wins an award, you're going to be okay, Mark. Like, it's okay. This book is heavy. Yes, it's very personal. It's very intimate. But other people are doing it. It's very much the thing of once you watch someone else do it, you're like, oh, okay, I can do this. And then the next year in, I think it was like April when I got the email and I got an email from my publicist that was like, oh, Nina LaCour is going to do your event in San Francisco. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? No, no, no. This should be the other way around. Oh, she made me cry so hard. But like, as soon as I showed up at the bookstore, she just, I will not share the They are my details to have forever. But like, she just said the nicest thing about anger is a gift that just was like, what a beautiful full circle moment for me. And then I, I told her on the, well, once we did the discussion, like, by the way, here's my relationship to you and your book. So like getting to have this moment feels very important to me. So this book is deeply important to not just me as a person, but me as an author. Let me pause here for a second because I may have given you the impression that Mark just came blasting out of the gate as this writer of fearless self-confession and heartfelt, uncompromising candor. Well, the real story is that by 2018, Mark had already been writing publicly for almost a decade, but it wasn't exactly soul-bearing novels. In fact, it was kind of the opposite in every way. An irreverent blog where Mark reviewed popular young adult books and TV shows from behind a thick wall of ironic snark. They called it Mark Does Stuff. So much of where this Mark Does Stuff universe came from is I missed out on everything. All these popular series, all these popular books, these television shows, I don't know what they are. I didn't grow up with them. And so... You know, I was I was doing this job working for this company called BuzzNet. And then just sort of as a side, it actually, I mean, it started as a joke between my coworkers because the Twilight books were doing really, really well. And I was like, what is, I, th- these are not my vampires. But I was like a little curious. So it was, it was born of this idea of there is something fun about getting into something you don't know that everyone else knows. And so it started as a joke, this little blog where I was, you know, I had a full-time job. So it was like, I can only read like one chapter a day. So I'll write a chapter and then just write like a snarky review of it. Then it took over my life for 13 years. I read something like 150 different books. That are always like books or things that everybody else is sort of aware of. So that you, so we're and like, I we're like on the was. inside and you're, yeah. 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 But it's also interesting because someone brought this up. I did an event in Portland uh, this summer And someone who had been reading the whole time, both like Mark does stuff and then now into my fiction was like, do you remember like how snarky and witty you were at the beginning and how the series then evolved into 
actually studying and appreciating these series for what they were, but they were like, have you ever gone back and read your like Hunger Games reviews? And I was like, oh, I was an asshole. And I was like, you know, just like making fun of like the YA tropes and stuff like that. But it was in the middle of that series where I started being like, but this is actually really good. Like it might have tropes that are popular and fun to make fun of, but like there is some serious commentary happening here. And it was something that just sort of clicked in my brain of, wait, there's another way to do this that isn't just snark. Yeah. And so the project shifted at that point in a lot of ways to be about, I want to discover why all of you like this. Right, right. Looking like several levels deeper, right? So from that shift in the blog over time, and then we get to Anchor as a Gift, and now Into the Light, your most recent solo novel, your work has become this increasingly earnest and open and nearing uh, autobiographical. Uh, And we've talked about how these characters like Manny or Caesar from Into the Light mirror some of the more specific aspects of your childhood. And I was wondering, is it daunting for you to push your writing in that direction? And I guess, does it change the way that you feel about your own story? So part of what I feel post-writing Into the Light is freedom. This is actually, it's very basic, but it is a great example of it. I've talked about some very personal, very upsetting things, and I don't cry about it anymore. This was a thing that would, prior, I would get very, very upset, understandably very upset about it. And it's not that I am dissociating from it now. It's that I'm like, oh, I can understand what it was and also understand it from a place of not blaming myself for any of it and thinking that any of this was my fault and not thinking as often Manny does, like, I'm a burden for telling people about this, or I was a burden when I was younger. And so a lot of what I feel is freedom. I feel not entirely, I would say, because I'm in it, we have a new therapist here in Atlanta, and we're still working through a lot of the stuff, but I do feel free from a lot of that pain and that trauma. Having been able to talk to people in person who have experienced religious trauma, who have experienced trauma around adoption, and getting to hear their specific reaction, like that stuff is, those are the people I was thinking of, you know, I didn't know them, but I was thinking of them as I was writing the book. For those readers, it's easy to imagine how Mark's books can be, as they described it, a hug that acknowledges their own similar experiences. But of course, there are legions of readers who love Mark's work, but haven't lived anything like it. Conversing with them can be less comfortable. I think where the practice of vulnerability where I've had to practice it and learn it is the people who do not relate to anything at all, but want to ask very personal questions. Like, so I go into these situations with empathy, trying to have empathy of why a person is asking this and trying to also see it as a question asked in good faith. You know, part of it is just hope. You have hope for other people that they're coming to you, like I said, in good faith and they are curious and it's practice. Vulnerability is practice. It is learning that you can do things and say things that seem scary, but ultimately know that you're safe. And so I try to build that, not just into my work as a whole, but when I talk about it, how can I make it feel like this space right now and this difficult thing we're talking about is safe and we're all okay to have a difficult conversation. Yeah. And speaking of responses to your work, can you think of any uh, meaningful moments, meaningful moments that really stood out that you've had while visiting students? Yeah. The first time that happened was I did a school visit outside of Chicago in 2018. And this like short, kind of gruff Latino kid came up after my event and he held up Anger's a Gift, which is a thick book, even bigger than Into Light, and was like, hey, 
this is the first book I've ever read. And I just laughed at him and his friends were like doing that thing, you know, like joshing him, him with his shoulders, like talk to him. And I was like, wait, what? He was like, no, I, I don't like books, but I've, this is the first book I've ever read, like cover to cover. And I immediately, you know, like tears welled in my eyes. And I was like, are you serious? And he was like, yeah. And then he said, I didn't know people like us were allowed to write. Of course, I know what that feels like. I remember being that person until Miss Alford, 14 years old, hands me the house on Mango Street. And that was for me, my permission. That was my book I read that I was like, oh, we're allowed to do this. Yeah, that's a great and powerful story. Are there any other, I guess, more recent, more recent stories you want to share with us? I just got back from a school visit in Cary, North Carolina, that was extremely chaotic and beautiful. And Why was it chaotic? I've been to the school before. They teach the insiders to all of their sixth graders. Really? In Cary, North Carolina. In Cary, North Carolina. And so the school visit was in two parts. The first half of the day, I did individual projects with the kids. I had to like step out of the room because I was getting so emotional about it. They built... They found a room on campus that they could turn into like a magical closet. And so they were coming in with ideas of how can we make this room the maximum amount of safe for the maximum amount of people? And what happens when people's needs overlap with other people's? Like, and I was just sitting there like, I can't believe this is happening. And then, so all these kids had never met an author. So they were feral. They were just like, <laughs> oh my God, tell me everything. Who's the most famous person you ever met? How much money do you make? You know, like tell us everything. It just was like, so I feel very renewed. Now finally rested, but like, very renewed. It's like that reminder of like, oh, this is why, this is why I do this. You know, Into the Light has just been this really big moment, it seems like in your life, like coming to terms with your own story and being more vulnerable than you have been before. And I'm sorry to learn that your mom passed away before the book came out. Did you ever reconcile with her or get some form of closure? Sort of. What I know about how that reconciliation, the first reconciliation came about was when my brother was particularly resentful because my mom didn't go to our graduation because she didn't want to see me. And I'm very proud of this. I was valedictorian hey. and salutatorian. So I gave, you know, through all of that, I still... That's incredible. You know what it was, though? It was spite. I got to this point where I was like, if you're not going to support me, well, then I'm going to do great without you. And it was very much a motivating factor. But I know part of why my brother wanted reconciliation is, is he was also very, very angry with my mom. And by the way, deeply supportive throughout all of this. He actually never once was like, you have to come home. You have to reconcile. He was like, I get it. I'll use modern language, but he was like, girl, live your best life. Like, you know, <laughs> very much in this, like, I'm getting to see you be free for the first time ever. And so we did finally have a conversation about a month before we, my brother and I left for college and we went to separate universities. I had somewhat of a relationship with her and it was this thing of always trying and it might feel good, but then she would slip back into a lot of her tendencies. I did have a really good relationship with my father until he passed away in 2006 and had some of my favorite conversations in my whole life with him in the last year before he passed. Some of them where he was like, I did not stand up enough for you and your siblings against our mother. P.S. She was also doing wild things to me. And it was this thing of like, as an adult being able to understand and then recall what was happening in that house and was like, oh, she was abusing him too. And that's a thing that you don't 
necessary. Oh, no, I won't say don't because some kids can pick up on it, but I don't think I ever. It's not the trope you're used to hearing, so you're not looking for no, it. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Well, and particularly because of gender and race, my dad was a dark-skinned Japanese Hawaiian man being abused by a, a white mother. And that is certainly not a trope or something that you see. So of course, a lot of that stuff went right over my head. And so the piece I made is like the level to which she abused myself and my brother and our younger sister was so intense and so relentless. And she never apologized for it. I think my whole career up to Into the Light is I am doling parts of myself out. Little parts, because I don't want to talk about the big part. And then I talked about the big part, and now I'm like, oh, I actually really like going just to the little parts where there are little things that I've experienced. There are elements of my next middle grade that are personal about grief, and I'm writing a new YA that's a love story. Oh, that you I've are? Done before. Okay. But so much of this book now is just fully made up, and it is giving me this new burst of creativity. Your love story is fully made up, you said. Yeah. Oh, but boy, it's very made up. It's extremely made up. <laughs> You're like, let me be clear. Parallel universes. Okay. <laughs> and like, it's like very speculative and, but it's dealing with, you know, an emotional truth that I dealt with. And I'm like, well, let me, how do I take this emotional truth and put it over here? And it's given me a joy, a new type of joy. I, I certainly had joy writing these other, the books that came prior to this, but it's this new joy because I think there is a fear in a lot of us who have written about very personal, vulnerable things that you don't have any ideas after that. Yeah. But it sounds like what you're saying is like you actually wrote the big one and now it feels like you have a, a new lease on being able to do other things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Learning to share their story and be vulnerable has shaped Mark's career and changed their life. So for their reading challenge, Stories of Vulnerability, they want us to explore other stories that feature the same amount of rawness that they bring to their work. I was thinking both recent books and a book or two that were deeply influential to me in thinking about writing main characters who are raw. Their emotions are on the page. There's no mystery about how they feel about things, but the mystery might be how do they deal with those feelings? What does it mean to have complicated, messy, harmful, toxic feelings about yourself, about the world, about your circumstances as well? And so I chose a list of all young adult books, and not only all young adult books, but all books by authors of color that deal with vulnerability in different scenarios. You can find Mark's challenge, Stories of Vulnerability, at thereadingculturepod.com, along with reading challenges from all of our past guests, including Sabah Tahir, Meg Medina, Renee Watson, and many more. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is Cindy Philbeck teacher librarian at Wando High School in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. She told us about her library's lunchtime strategy that encourages students to come visit and see the space as a place of refuge. What's unique at our school is that the library is not a quiet study zone. It is a loud, lively place during our lunches. We have third block lunches, so we have an hour and a half every day where maybe a little bit more than an hour and a half. Each lunch is about 45 minutes. So we have a period throughout the day where all we do is talk with students, allow them to come in and relax, have recreation time, 
choose books, play games, board games, anything tactile and fun. I mean, they destroy a deck of Uno cards in a minute. They just want to play chess. They want to take a break from their devices most of the time. Now, there are quite a number of students over in the quieter zone where they're studying or they're doing some small group work. But for the most part, lunch is lively. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with Mark Oshiro. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading The Memory Thieves by Danielle Clayton and The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and really helps. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and insights. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thank you for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.